0: Welcome to the Thad Education Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be dealing with how to overcome client objections. Now, we all know that client objections. This is a massive topic for a lot of people, particularly in you know in the freelance and creative community, because we simply hate having to deal with them. And I've seen a lot of content online. Um, which talks about the you know how to do it and what to say and look by a lot of people you know I've watched those videos and I've been very very impressed by I guess it's a kind of um, almost like a verbal jujitsu with which they recommend that you can overcome objections and I was thinking this like wow you know it's so important to learn how to handle objections and what to say to be smart But as it sort of I thought a little bit longer, I was like, well, actually, I don't know, because it's the same thing of if I was to say I want to pick up women, I want to say learn phrases and things to seem cool and attractive. And I think they call it negging in that community. But what you soon realise is, why would I want to treat people I want to get to know badly by making them feel inadequate and almost having a kind of argument? instead of what I really want is to just have something in common and get on and just have a normal discussion. And I kind of feel that this almost obsession with how to overcome client objections is possibly well meaning, but misguided. Because when I think back about how I've dealt with this in the past, uh, it wasn't at all like this. And I was talking to someone who does sales, and, and they're one of the best people I know at sales. And they even said that it's not really an objection it's this thing of it's more of a concern and if you think of it as like it's a client concern then it's much easier to reframe how we handle that because an objection feels far more kind of aggressive and judgmental against us and a concern is just something that they're you know just want to discuss because they're not 100% sure about which is much easier and what I felt that was actually it's not really about how to handle client objections as such it's how to fix your marketing so that when a client comes to you, they already know what you do, how much you charge, what you offer. And so there's less objections. So I'll give you an example. Quite often, you know, as you some of you may know, we had a hotel. We still do. And we've had this hotel for probably 45 years. And it's an unusual hotel. It's over 400 years old. Uh, it's and Because of that, it's a listed building, which means we can't do anything to upgrade it. Now, some people love this and that's why they would come and stay. Other people hate it because it doesn't have like mini fridges in the room. It doesn't have a pool or a spa, you know, or anything like that. It's an old fashioned place. And so what I used to find was quite often the people who came, they like that. And we never talked about the fact that it wasn't modern because they already knew what they were expecting because whoever had recommended it had told them or we'd been you know, mentioned in a newspaper or magazine or on TV. And, and again, it had made it clear kind of what we offered. But when we occasionally would get someone who would come along who would be really kind of confused and upset because we didn't have a spa or a pool, um, you realise that this is just someone who slipped through the net. It's not anyone's fault. They've just misunderstood what they were expecting. They haven't quite done their research. There was another Abbey hotel, which was in Scotland or Malvern, I think, that had spas. So obviously they kind of had booked the Abbey and hadn't really looked into it. And what I found was that this wasn't a confrontation or an argument. They just were realising that, like, oh, I I thought you had these things, but you don't. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't really fix that, but I can find you somewhere else that will have that. And they were actually relieved that I would put them in and find a, a nearby hotel that had all the you know the amenities and and features and everything they wanted. And so the, it wasn't an objection, it wasn't a problem, it wasn't an argument and it wasn't a confrontation. It was just a case of we needed to make sure that we were clear on what our best features were and we were clear on what we did and didn't have and do and that we were marketing in the right places in order to resonate with a particular audience that really liked that. And vice versa, what you do and what you have is equally as important as communicating what you don't have. And it was the same as when people came with Groupon, you know, they were looking for deals and they didn't like it and they didn't want to come back. And what I soon realised was there's no point doing these kind of money off Uh, promotions because you're just getting the wrong type of customer who's not going to want to come back they're not going to recommend it to their friends over on the flip side um, if you were marketing or you were featured say in the telegraph or something that would bring thousands of pounds worth of clients who loved it wanted to come back and would tell all their friends and so it was it was kind of it would reinforce itself so when i think about kind of client objections and how we handle them I am, like I said, I'm absolutely deeply impressed by how people like Christo of the future can reframe conversations and get clients kind of almost on the back foot. But my problem was a little bit that these client objections, they felt semi sort of aggressive, really. And like I said, if you came into a conversation with a client and they were rude enough to say you're too expensive, then really, for me, that's a massive red flag. And I'm going to go. I probably am, but there's lots of people out there who are much cheaper you you 're welcome to go and work with them i wouldn't spend the time trying to convince a client who had talked to me that way that they should spend more money with me. That would be that sort of response or that accusation of being too expensive would be a red flag, and that would only tell me that they're going to question other things in the in the project that they also deem to be too expensive, but now i'm locked into a legal contract with them, and i can 't just bin them off so the one thing i wanted to address is actually if you are hand, coming up with these you know coming up against these objections then it's not about justifying them or convincing the other person they're wrong or fighting them it's about going actually do you know what maybe my marketing's off or the person who's making referrals hasn't quite understood the type of client i'm looking for and once we fix our marketing, then the objections go away. And that's the easiest way to actually handle and fix all client objections in one fell swoop instead of learning the lingo needed to kind of get yourself any out of any awkward situation. However, I know for a lot of people it's not, you know, uh, easy. So I wanted to kind of handle what I felt were probably the most common client concerns you might come across. And, you know, you're trying to kind of reframe how people might handle them because, like I said, my my belief is that marketing is what fixes uh, most client objections. Um, but actually, that's a bigger problem. So if you are finding these objections in the short term, this is how I would kind of recommend uh, handling them. And like I've said, I generally feel that people are going to probably, you know, their biggest objections you're going to come across is your size, um, where you're going to go, well, you know, you're not big enough. We want to work with a bigger company or perhaps you're far away um, and you want to work with someone local or you're too expensive. And they're they're always going to be uh, the most common ones. And there's always, you know, things that you can do to mitigate them or change them. So I would always feel that, uh, you know, we just have to look at how we behave uh, and we need to find like more workable solutions that are going to appease the client. And as a side note here. I've often found that one of the biggest opportunities to stand out in a marketplace is by listening to what clients have got problems with. Quite often, they will have an objection because of the way they've been treated in the past. So, if they feel that, oh, you know, we worked with a smaller agency before and it didn't work, I didn't like it, then it's worth instead of going, oh, well, you know, maybe you're not good the right one for us. Just ask why. Just be curious. If you detach yourself from needing to win the work and just have a conversation, you might find that, well, they didn't like working with a smaller or a remote agency because they felt that there wasn't the sort of accountability and communication level that they wanted. So this means that, you know, they were trying to get hold of someone on the team. They didn't get back to them. They'd have to wait a long time and they were kind of feeling like lost and concerned because it's like, well, where's the communication? Because, you know, you're not local. I can't pop into your office or you're not big. So I wonder, are you dedicating enough time to my project? That's the reasoning behind it. So the opportunity there is to actually get double down and provide a solution to that. So in this instance. Saying, well, look, if, if that really matters to you, then I can bring in and hire a project manager who will manage your account only and no one else's. And I'll do even better than that. I'll give you their direct mobile number and they'll be available at weekends and in the evening. So if you have any concerns or any questions, you can phone them directly and they will let you, you know, speak and they will answer your questions and, you know, put you at ease. However, the cost of having that kind of service is quite expensive because it is a bespoke service. So again, if that really matters to you, then you probably don't have a problem paying for it. But this is how much it's going to cost. And what you do that way is you show that you understand what the client is going through. You offer a solution which is going to keep them happy, but you charge for it properly because it is an extra kind of effort on your part to provide the solution. And this is perfectly acceptable. And it's exactly the same as in if you were in a restaurant and you had some sort of food allergy and the restaurant had to get in a certain type of ingredient in order to prepare something for you. You would pay a little bit extra for the inconvenience, but you would appreciate that they'd made an effort to kind of fix what was wrong and try and help you. And I believe it's kind of the same thing. It's one of those ones that you can kind of... uh, Talk and kind of manage things, and you could say, "Well, you know, I've never worked with someone I've never met before," and then you might want to say, "Well, have you ever done business with any companies that you've never met the owners, or have you ever bought anything from someone online where you've never actually known who you're buying from?" And when you sort of reflect that at them, they're going to go, "Well, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I buy from Amazon and eBay, so yeah, maybe that's right." But as I said, it's it's harder to stand your ground unless you're confident in your ability to kind of. Um, handle the conversation. And it's not always easy, particularly if it feels like we're being attacked or it's very tempting to get defensive. So it comes back to kind of these things of how you're going to handle uh, client conversations and client concerns. And so I thought I wanted to kind of go through it and explain what I would like to do. So this is how I would kind of Uh, start the whole thing from now and how I would look to handle these objections and what I would do differently. So the key thing with all of this is we want to walk into a situation where the client that we're meeting is already not really pre-sold, but they're already inclined to want to work with us. This is why referrals are so good, because if we're getting referrals, the person doing the referring has already sold us in. So that makes actually closing the deal so much easier because their endorsement has done half the work for us. If we're not getting referrals, we want to be in a situation where we're we're having client conversations and the client already knows about us. So I think the word is primed. But, you know, what we want to say is they need to know who we are, what we do, the type of clients we work with, our kind of level of credibility and success um, and how much we charge. So the key thing is if you want the client to know all of this in advance and having known all of this information, they still want to talk to us because they want to do business with us. Then we're put in a great position to kind of seal the deal, so to speak. So what I would ask is before the meeting and as a general sort of way of behaving in your business, you need to make sure that you are communicating all of those things. So, for example, have you demonstrated your authority, so your expertise? This is usually going to be done through thought leadership, maybe books you've written, awards you've won, articles, you know, videos. If you're creating content that demonstrates your authority, this is going to make the whole overcoming client objections and concerns much, much easier. Often the two aren't really linked because there's quite a big time gap between putting out a thought leadership article and then, you know, winning over a client, but often they are absolutely linked. And this is why we would do it. It's not just good PR and good personal brand building and marketing it's lowering those objections before we've even had the meeting secondly have you demonstrated empathy so empathy is another big one for convincing clients and this is showing that you understand what they're going through from an emotional point of view because you've had sort of success or you've worked on various projects that have um you know allowed you that insight so again you need to work on your storytelling so you understand how they're feeling the language you're using in your website copy and your marketing copy as well as sharing client stories and testimonials which are kind of going to show that you understand what they were going through how you've helped people and by showing the authority which is the expertise and the empathy Now you're beginning to win them over because they're going to like you as a person because you understand how they feel. And that's going to make everything so much easier when it comes to kind of them deciding they want to work with you. Next up is going to be your experience. So along with your authority and your empathy is going to be your experience, which is showing how long you've been working in their industry. And have you been working on the type of projects that are they, you know, similar to what they're going to ask you to work on? This will come down to in-depth case studies because This is obviously a bit of it's a balance of storytelling and everything. That's why I think they're so powerful. But effectively, a case study is where you get to show your experience and your kind of technical and tactical ability, because there's going to be some sort of um, success metrics and sort of uh, a breakdown of what the problem was and how you overcome it. So that's really important that you do um, really compelling case studies. Along with that. You're going to want to include testimonials from happy clients within that industry. And the more you can include over a longer period of time will also demonstrate your experience of actually having success in their industry, working with a wide range of clients and how happy they are. The final thing, um, you need to communicate how much you charge. Now, some people are uncomfortable putting their price on the website, and I do understand that. But I do feel that there are subtle ways that it can be done so you can, um, you know, communicate that indirectly. And I was thinking about this earlier. So what do you think would be a good kind of reference point or symbol that you could use that would set a kind of imaginative imaginary price point in your head? And if you think about a restaurant... If I'm looking at restaurants and I can look at ratings, but that doesn't tell me a price. But there is one thing which will actually anchor all of it. And if that's a Michelin star. So when we won a Michelin star with our restaurant a few years ago, what that meant was by winning that award, there is everything that goes along with it. So anyone who has a Michelin star, the natural assumption is that, well, they've obviously worked very hard to get it. They use excellent quality ingredients they have an extremely talented chef. They can afford to enter the award and they can afford to pay for all these ingredients, talent, you know, all the everything you have to go through to win that kind of accolade. So therefore, do I think that a Michelin star restaurant is going to be cheap or expensive? And the answer is, I think it's going to be expensive and I'd be right. And so when I book at a Michelin star restaurant, I'm already going one because I want to t- try Michelin starred cuisine. So that's a signal that appeals to a certain audience. But two, I'm expecting to sit on a waiting list and I'm expecting to pay a lot of money for the experience because they have a Michelin star. They don't even need to, to, you know, directly quote me the prices on the menu even because the star is doing all the work for me. So for you in your industry, I'm sure that there are probably awards and accreditations that will also do a similar job. Likewise, the level and the size of clients you're working with will also raise or lower expectations as to how much you're going to cost and the final thing if you don't want to put your prices on the website what you can offer is um, to do like a form they fill out and when you ask the client what's your budget and your lowest price point might be what projects start from so you might say well we've got to the stage where we don't take on anything um, lower than ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars or five thousand dollars it totally depends on what you do but when you're asking, kind of, what's your budget, you might do is it 10 to 20, 20 to 50, 50 to 100,000, say? And what that does is it's sort of price anchoring to a certain extent because you're showing them, like, well, they must take on projects that are six figures regularly, you know, if they're quoting up to a $100,000. So, like, clearly, this is kind of if I'm a client who's got a budget of $50,000, then I'm perfectly comfortable. Whereas if I've only got two thousand dollars, I'm like, aha, they're too big and expensive for me. Likewise, if I'm a client with a budget of a million dollars, I'm like, well, they're not big enough for me. So this whole thing of being able to show your, you know, your price in either directly or indirectly is also filtering out these clients, which is ultimately going to be luring these objections if they ever come up. The next stage is let's say that the client has reached out to you and they want to meet with you. If all of that is working for you, you want to put some effort into what happens before the meeting. So, again, what we're looking to do is reduce any potential client objections so that when we have the meeting, it goes smooth and we're not forced into this verbal jujitsu and end up, you know, speaking like Mr. Miyagi and, and sort of bamboozling them with our sort of our, you know articulate skills. Before the meeting, you need to filter them out and prime them to show that they are committed a good way of doing this is a little bit of due diligence of um, who they are and what they work, who they've worked with and how big they are. But often the best way is to ask them to complete some sort of task prior to the meeting. So they might want to um, fill out a form or a worksheet, watch a video or even pay some sort of deposit. Now, I know you might say, well, this is unrealistic. I'm not. Why would I, why would I get them to pay? Depending on how you handle your business, you might say, well, all introductory sort of meetings. We don't do teas and coffees for 15 minutes because they never are 15 minutes, but we do do an hour-long kind of client fit, you know, discovery type session where we get to know each other and I understand about the project. However, there is a fee for that. You might find that what that does, again, is it just eliminates the people who are going to waste your time. Likewise, um, asking someone to fill out a form or a worksheet or watch a video before the meeting allows you to realise if they haven't even made the effort to do something like that, then they're not really committed to the project and you can dismiss them. And I've seen this tactic used a lot with um, business coaches. They want to know that their clients are committed because they're busy. And a great way is to say, look, I'd love you to watch the video, fill out the worksheet and send this to me in advance. A kind of like homework. And then we can review it in our session. And that works very, very well because the more committed people are happy to do it and the ones that are possibly just feeling you out and maybe waste your time aren't going to bother. During the meeting. I think that when we go into the meeting, there are certain ways we can behave. I would always say the first one is to go in um, very open, very relaxed almost assuming you're not going to get the business and trying to detach yourself from actually getting the business. Because if we're less bothered, it's much easier to be relaxed. So that's the big thing. Go in there confident, relaxed and calm. Um, if the client senses you're stressed or irritated or anxious, and this is before or during the discussion, things can easily escalate and get out of hand. So we want to avoid that at all stages. I would also say as a rule, it's it's more important to spend time listening and making notes than it is talking. Because like a kind of therapy session, you want to reflect what the client is saying to you back at them to make sure you've understood it and to make sure that they feel heard. And quite often, what they say and what they want don't always align. And when you're making notes and you're really listening, you'll be able to see that. So that's a better way of doing it. You're not there to interview them. You're not there to tell them what you think they need. You're there to find out and kind of uncover what they really need, not what they think they need. A good way of setting the stage when you first enter the meeting is is getting to ask them three very simple but powerful questions. And these are this. Why this? Why now? And why me? Immediately, that puts you in a position of authority and allows them to kind of think about what it is they're asking you to do, why they're deciding to go ahead with it now, and why have they chosen you? All of this is useful information anyway, but the whole point is, it automatically raises you in a status situation above them, and that allows you to control the meeting a lot more. And that's always, you know, a good way to go. When it comes to client communication, then the soft skills in what you're doing are the most important. It isn't uh, an opportunity to have an, you know, any sort of conflict or argument, but it's the discussion. you you are not your ideas. And if they're going to be challenged, that's okay. This is what I said about the emotional detachment. It isn't a personal meeting. Um, An example would be like this. When people would come to the hotel and they were fed up and they would arrive grumpy, I would feel guilty. I'd be like, oh no, have we let them down? What have we done wrong? The answer is we haven't done anything wrong because everyone else was happy and we've done exactly the same thing. What I can't control is the journey they've had down. If they've had a terrible journey with lots of traffic, they've been arguing in the car, the kids have been a nightmare, the car broke down, whatever it is, that is probably more likely to be why they're angry and they're projecting that frustration onto me. So the best thing I can do as the manager is just to remain impartial, patient, and try and put them at ease by trying to find out ways that I can make them relax and feel reassured. So whether this is like, look, I'll get your bags in and park your car. Would you like tea and coffee? Why don't you go up and sit by the fire and I'll bring you some wine? Whatever that would be, that immediately allows them to relax, puts them at ease, de-stress. After they've had a five, ten minutes to calm down, the fact their car's parked, the bags are in the room, and they're having a nice cup of tea and cake or maybe some champagne or wine or whatever they wanted, that is going to make them feel ten times better and they're going to feel relieved. And then they're going to sort of revert back to who they really are as a person. So it's important we do that, that we put them at ease. We don't get angry if, if people sort of come at us. We don't know what they're going through, what they've you know, been through previously, so it is worth just being relaxed about it. Whenever they do have a concern, it's our job to uncover, one, why they're having this concern, and two, how justified is this concern really? Often, when we reflect the concern back to them, they will look at it differently. So it's this thing of finding out what has made them feel that way, and are they right in their assumption? Is what they're saying true or is it become very subjective because they've had a bad experience in the past? So this is where the writing down of your notes is handy, because when you reflect it back at them, they get a chance to see and hear what they sound like. And if you have put them at ease and you're relaxed, then they might feel differently. And this is the thing of where they're going to again... Stereotypes, previous experience, is all going to build into what they're thinking. These preconceptions, because that's how we react. We we make snap judgments or generalizations of a bunch of whole group of people that we don't really know, all based on one small experience that we've had. So, it's really really important that we address those concerns and we fix them. The most uh, common concerns and that you will probably face will be the following, and I wanted to give you just a few tools on how to handle them because. It's going to be how you handle these questions and what you're able to kind of say in response will make you more confident and make you more comfortable in the situation. And again, what you're trying to do is just shape the conversation to uncover what their real objection is and how that came about. So this is where we would say it's not about kind of um, arguing. It's about finding a resolution and again, being detached enough and relaxed enough to not take it personally. So if they say you're too expensive, well, that might be what they're trying to say is I can't afford to pay you that. So there is a different thing of the defensive reaction is that that's too much. But the reality is like I can't afford it. And that's embarrassing. So you need to find out what made them feel feel this way. You're too expensive compared to who or or what. Um, And maybe make them think about, well, look, if this is a really important problem in your business, then in my experience, if you know it's an important problem, it's probably worth putting a little bit more budget than you would normally do towards fixing that problem. Because if you can fix an important problem in your business, that's going to have a really big impact, isn't it? Versus spending a lot of money on something which isn't really significant. If, you know, they they kind of agree and they can think, well, OK, well, so, so the question is going to be, well, how can we overcome the kind of pricing problem? So. Maybe they can say, look, is there any other budget you could draw from another department in your company um, Could to, you know, to find another, you know, if you can increase the budget for this particular job, then I think that would be really sort of worth considering because, you know, you're going to solve a proper problem. Or if they can't afford that and they're kind of like they want to work with you, but they have a limited budget, then you have two things. You can negotiate kind of the level of scope and the deliverables that they want. So you can reduce your scope for the job and therefore bring your price down to match what they can afford. Or perhaps you could offer them some sort of payment plan. So you go like, well, look, if you can't afford to pay, you know, 10 grand up front, does a thousand pounds a month work for you over 10 months? A lot of people are going to, you know, the key is to not humiliate them or make them feel bad. They're already probably edgy and kind of sensitive about this and defensive, So again, you're just trying to negotiate what's another option. If this was a restaurant, you wouldn't say, well, you can't afford the steak, so don't have it, tough. You might go, well, look, there's other options on the menu. Um, You know, maybe you could not have a side and have it. There's there's ways around deciding what you can afford and what you can't and what you want and what you need. And we're trying to get away from this of us feeling bad for being accused of being too expensive. That's not where we want to go. We want to try and look at it you know, in other ways. So it's this thing of we need to kind of uh, ask them things like how important and urgent is this project to them, you know, to understand that, you know, how much does it relate to solving a problem in their business and how much is solving that problem worth to them? Do they value solving that problem enough to spend money to fix it and trying to find out why they can't afford you? So, like I said, if we can work out all these problems and even just go, well, look. if we're too expensive, what what can you afford? What have you got available? Let's see what we could do for that. There's nothing wrong with this. You're not going to be laughed at or humiliated just because you've come down in your price. The important thing is you don't need to unnecessarily discount. Discounting should never be an option. It should always be a case of you add value or reduce scope, but never discount. And I will get into the dangers of discounting in another podcast, but generally that's what we want to do. So if you wanted to make the, the client feel reassured and more comfortable, as I said, reduce the deliverables so that it matches their, their budget and then offer to spread the cost. And those two things together allows everyone to get what they want. You've won the work. They've got the opportunity to work with you within your budget and no one's lost face. And that, for me, is a better resolution than trying to have some sort of smart ass conflict and kind of be really snappy with your answers. So that's how I would handle typically a sort of concern about maybe being too expensive. The next one would be you're too small. What that translates as is probably I feel safer with a more established company that has more people. That's what they're trying to say. It's not that they're ruling you out, but they just feel more reassured if there were more people available you know, to work on their project. The questions you're going to have to ask yourself is, were they not aware of our size before they came to you? You know, maybe you could ask them, you know, if you didn't, if you knew that we were small, why did you still come to us? You know, when did the uh, size of our team affect you choosing us or not choosing us? And like I said before, when you're asking them, like, well, did you know how big we were? Um, When did, like, the, what is the number of people that becomes a problem for you? And it's not that you want to, pinpoint that their sort of concern is ridiculous I would imagine there is going to be some sort of bad experience that's happened before and we need to uncover that so we need to ask questions like do you feel that big teams are better than small teams and have you ever used a smaller team before and those kind of questions will uncover probably this bad experience they've had Uh, you might say what is it about a bigger team that you feel you would get that a smaller team couldn't give you because this is going to lead to the actual objection. Is it going to be client attention? Is it going to be the level of expertise or the speed of turnaround or, you know, the time allocated to the project? You know, these are the things that you're going to want them to be specific about and then you can build in that solution. So you might say, well, what advantages would you consider a small team has over a large team? And you might say, well, it might be speed. It might be, well, we can bring in you know, dedicated experts to work on whatever you need. We have the flexibility to scale up and scale down your team. You might say that in typically in a larger company, the boss will meet you for the first meeting and then your work will be palmed off to a junior and you won't get the level of attention that you deserve. There's loads of ways of explaining that. The next stage is always going to be, how can we compensate to make the client feel reassured? So if they say, look, you're too small, then we can bring in additional expertise. You know, where are the areas that we they feel we're lacking? And if they say, well, you have a web designer, but I need an SEO expert and a Facebook ads expert as well, and this agency could offer that whole thing, you go, not a problem. We can bring those people into the project. Obviously, there is going to be an additional cost, but if you're getting great people, then that's not a problem. They'll probably happily agree to that, because if they don't, it seems strange having just cited that that's what they were looking for. You could also say, well, look, why don't we provide a weekly report on what we've been working on so that you can present that to your boss. So therefore, you feel like you're in control of the project and you're up to speed as to sort of the progress we're making. Again, not a hard thing to do. Most software, you know, you can easily export this into a chart or a form. So this is also possible. And it's this thing, again, we're trying to find out what is their concern, what is their problem? And let's try and fix it, not reject it outright and just tell them to leave us alone. So. Again, what we're looking to do is just accept what they're saying, try and uncover the real reason and then find ways to fix it by adjusting maybe how we normally work. Or in this case, if it really matters to us to win that job, we're going to go, right, well, we can change things for you in this case that we wouldn't normally do. Make them feel special. There's no problem with this. Another one is going to be, and this again is probably the third biggest one, which is probably you're too far away. And for that example, you know, particularly if it's uh, you're looking at sort of working over Zoom, what they're probably saying, such as, oh, you're too far away. And I've had this with clients where they're like, oh, you know, it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Because you're, you're a long way away. And what they've then said is like, yeah, because it'd be nice to actually meet you face to face and you, we can introduce you to some of the people. That's their real concern is they want to meet you face to face. And so you're beginning to weigh up. OK, so what's more important here? So you'll kind of go, why did you come to me if you knew we were far away? Were you not aware of where we were based? And again, you're they're going to be like, well, I knew you were based a long way away, but I wanted to really work with you. Okay, so did the distance that we were from you, did that affect the problem? How far away would you consider that you would like to work with us? So is it is it like five miles or 50 miles or... 500 miles What well, where's the distance cutoff point and the problem is what we're trying to see here is again we're trying to uncover like why is it important to meet the team what is the real reason is it literally that you want to meet the team or is it that you feel that we're not as uh, accessible because we're miles away so we need to kind of uncover what that would be so we're going to go okay do you feel that local businesses are better than Businesses that are based are far away, not necessarily. Okay, have you ever used a business that wasn't local to you before? You know, in your company, clearly because Amazon, everyone uses Amazon. Um, what is it about a local agency that you feel you wouldn't get from an agency based overseas? Again, this is beginning to uncover what they might do, and they might say, well, it's communication, um, it's industry knowledge, it's kind of local knowledge, it's client handholding or attention. Um, And then you might go, well, what what advantages does a remote team have over a local team? And you can list those as well, because for every pro, pro and con for both, there's ways to mitigate that. Like I said before, we need to work in how can we compensate for this to make the client feel reassured? So, for example, you could bring in local expertise. So I'm based far away, but I have contacts near you who could do video and photography and copywriting. I could work with them and they could come and visit you at your office. Would it be nicer if you had like regular Zoom meetings with the whole team, maybe once or twice, you know, once a week or every two weeks where we could catch up and stay in touch? Or like I said in the previous example, would you really appreciate an actual specific project manager assigned to your project so that you felt accountable and then she could come and visit you if need be? And we'd actually, you know, we would build that into the budget. So if you wanted her to physically visit the location within means um, once a month, then we could arrange for that as well. All of this is going to put them at ease because you're showing that you want to solve the problem for them. You're not trying to defend yourself or get angry. You're trying to help them solve the problem. And this brings me back to the overall theme of the podcast, which is it's about how to handle client objections. Instead of, you know, trying to confront them, their concerns. And if done properly, they should be easy to solve and fix because the desire to work with you is the overriding thing for the whole project. As a rule, I would always say never discount. Always reduce your scope or what you're going to offer in the job, because when you discount, you lose credibility. Uh, You set the tone for them. they, They can potentially squeeze more discounts out of you. And this discount financially is very hard to make up, so we don't want to be doing that. Um, I would always say that you want to reduce the scope of what you do or bring in extra talent so they can kind of cover any extra special requests they have and always make it clear how much it's going to cost them to do that. The key thing for everything is to make sure that you are able to kind of see the opportunity. The silver lining of a client objection is that you can build a bespoke service just for them that will put them at ease and they will sing your praises and love you for it. And what I've often found is this is where like a USP comes in because you're not going to be the first, this isn't going to be the first time that other agencies have let clients down in a similar fashion. And once you know that this thing is a constant stumbling block, because it really matters to clients, but agencies don't seem to get that and they keep making this mistake you can double down on that and say, well, yeah, we're one of the few agencies that actually offer this unique service for this reason. And then whatever that is, that's when you can offer it. It might be that we give you a dedicated project manager available 24 hours a day on a bat phone, or we actually will always come and visit your premises, no matter where you are in the world, at least once a month. All these things are possible. And again, for the client, especially if they're going to pay for them. And that would be it. So like I said, the whole point of me wanting to get over this was, the big way to fix all of this in the first place is to jump back in time fix your marketing make it really clear that you're marketing to the right people you make it clear your level of expertise your level of experience your level of understanding what they're going through and how much you charge and if you fix all of those things then you won't have to handle client objections because everyone is going to come to you already educated on what you do how much you charge and what you're like to work with. And when they do come round, they're already pre-sold. So it's not going to be difficult to sell them. And you're not actually going to have to handle many objections at all. And that's the dream scenario we all want to end up in. So I hope you found that helpful. Um, I know certainly for me, that's how I've been handling it in the past. All I would say is, if you have any questions, please reach out to me. It's thad at thadducation.com. And if you know of anyone who would benefit from you know, listening to this episode. I really appreciate it if you share with them. And as always, please join the Facebook group. Please follow me online and have a great day. Best of luck.